You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People, and our topic today for this episode is the art of translating the Bible, and our guest is someone that we're very excited to have on here. It's none other than Robert Alter, and who cares? Well, here's the who cares. Robert Alter uh, is is a very significant, influential, and it's one of these guys, uh, biblical scholars who's just out there everywhere. And, you know, it's hard to, for example, get out of seminary for those of us who went to seminary, without reading something this guy said. He's just – he's a great scholar, and he's at UC Berkeley, and he's he's still there. This this man is 84, yeah, 84. years old. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's been around for a while, and he's still teaching. And you're going to hear how very articulate he is. Yeah, I mean, he's sharp. Yeah, more than me. Mm. That's for sure. Absolutely more than you. Most people but, are, though. So, okay. uh, yeah, that's not saying yeah. too much. Uh, it's, a, it's a weak standard to go by. Yeah. So, but <laughs> – well, you know, I, I just think we can't really overstate – well, maybe we can overstate, but mm-hmm. just to talk about the significance of Robert Alter's work in biblical scholarship. Like, it was a major thing to have him here on the podcast. Yeah, just absolutely. Just with the yeah. influence that he's had in some of his earlier books and uh, and, and clearly with this um, translation of mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible, which right. is very significant uh, task. Just to right. even do it and then to do it really well. yeah. This is like the culmination probably of his work because he's written – Jared referred to some books that uh, he's written before that are influential. One is the art of biblical narrative, like biblical stories. There's an artistic dimension to it and the art of biblical poetry. And now for the past – you know, he corrected me. It was only two and a half decades. I thought it was three. But for two and a half decades, he has been – he worked on a one-man translation of the entire – Bible, Hebrew Bible, from Hebrew to the way he thinks it should be in English. And that's what we're talking to him about. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like, wh- what's missing in translations that we see here? I get asked a lot, Jared, I don't know about you, but people will say, well, what's the best English translation of the Bible? And I say, there isn't one. The, they, they all have pluses and mm-hmm. they all have minuses. And Robert Alter will say that his three-volume, 3,000-page translation of the Bible uh, you know, he had to make some decisions, and it's that's not perfect either, but he's getting something across that is missing in in his estimation basically any other translation out there. Well, uh, one of the things I appreciated about hearing how he went through that process was I always think of my favorite translations are often the ones I read like in commentaries where you read the commentary mm-hmm. and they're translating it as it goes because they can kind of explain everything as they're going. Yeah. And to hear him take just the sheer amount of knowledge that he has. And and one thing that I really appreciated is he talks about the, the art of this, that there's a, mm-hmm. he wanted to capture the style of the Bible and how that's just as important when we're talking about what the Bible is. Than, it's just as important as like the science of it, just the mechanics mm-hmm. of the words and so I really appreciated that he wants to capture the art of the Bible, the style of the Bible. And that stuff is, I think, what makes it relevant mm-hmm. and meaningful and significant for a lot of us. And connects more. Right. You know, yeah, relatable. Re- readings of the Bible, that translations rather, that try to capture the feel of the ancient language. And I think, you know, just we didn't talk about this, but one one real positive of this is, 
you read his translation and you realize you're actually reading an ancient text. And too often it's sort of modernized very quickly so that we dumb people can understand it. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't think people are dumb. He thinks people can handle it. <laughs> you know, if you just sort of give them the Bible as faithful as you can be to the original, which means capturing that artistic flavor. Because, you know, these biblical writers were – they were – they were good writers, you know. They they have word plays and 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 you know things things like that, that. Just things that make this a very interesting literary product. This Bible, not negating the fact that the Bible has a complex history. It wasn't written by one person in one sitting or anything like that. But the Bible that we have was intentionally compiled and edited and woven together. And what you have is just a really that a piece of literature that's worthy of adult literary attention. That's mm. that's the way I would put it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, get into this conversation with Robert Alter, which again was such a gift to us, and uh, we know it will be for you as well. The 20th century translators made the rather stupefying assumption that people cannot understand metaphor anymore. Instead of giving you the metaphor that's in the original, they substitute what they think the metaphor refers to. This is very condescending to the intelligence of readers, and I prefer to give readers a good deal of credit. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Well, Robert, thank you for being on our podcast. It's great to have you. I'm happy to be here. Yes, wonderful. You've got such an illustrious career, and we're, we're happy just to be able to talk with you. We know that a lot of people are excited about this podcast as well. So, okay, you just did something pretty monumental. I shouldn't say you just did it, because you were at it for like three decades of translating well, the only two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's older than some we of our listeners. Exaggerate. <laughs> I know. Let's let's uh, not, no hyperbole. That's that's for the Hebrew Bible, not for us right now. But um, yeah, that's older than a lot of our listeners. I think two and a half decades. But um, but you translated the entire Hebrew Bible, a fresh translation, and as I recall, I think you did this by hand. Right? I did. Well, uh, okay. I happen to be a pretty good typist. Uh, I, I took typing when I was in high school many years ago, wow. uh, but I've never been able to write for publication except uh, in pencil on narrow line pages. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, why, why does that connect with you? My, my theory is, is this. I, I very much view all the writing I've done, both the translation and or all kinds of books that mostly literary criticism, uh, uh, one volume of biography. Uh, I view all, all that as a kind of craft. That, that is one thing that sets me off from ordinary um, academic writers is that I very much craft my language. I, I, I view style as, even when I'm not translating, it's something very important. And somehow or other, it's a little bit like being 
a painter or a sculptor. That, that, that is when I have the pencil, I use a particular kind of mechanical pencil, cross mechanical pencil. When I have it in my hand, I feel a kind of living connection mm. between my body and the words that I'm crafting. And I think that's why I, I've always written everything by hand. Well, I think that's a great segue into a question that I would have, Robert, about, you know, maybe at the highest level, before we get into some details about the translation uh, work that you did, we often think of some of these things as there's this creative element to it, and then there's this science science behind it. How much of what you did would you categorize, or what was the relationship between creativity and, and the science of translation in your experience? Ah, well, I think that they're inseparable, and I couldn't re- really separate them out in- into so many percentage points for one and then for the other. In other words, when you're working with any ancient text, there are all kinds of issues of, you know, what we call philology. That, that is, does this word mean such and such or such and such? And how, how do you determine meanings of obscure words? So that is scientific. Uh, the, the, um, I suppose it's in a way scientific, uh, sorting out the, the, uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, context uh, of various biblical verses in terms of the material culture, the history, what archaeology tells us uh, about. So all that is scientific. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, every sentence, I think, well, I make an exception for chronicles and, and a, a few places in the Bible that use uh, boilerplate language, but almost every sentence in, in the, the Bible is itself uh, an embodiment of sophisticated style. And then the creativity goes into, is there some way that in the English language I can find at least an approximate equivalent of that kind of style? Uh, and uh, and that's where the creativity comes in. And at times, uh, one you have to be very inventive. For example, the Hebrew Bible is full of wordplay. And mm-hmm. unlike my predecessors, I feel that the wordplay is very important, and you have to try to reproduce it in translation. And that requires a lot of inventiveness. Robert, can you give us – I mean, that's that's fascinating. Can you give us – an example that may come to mind of like a wordplay that you, you try to get across in English translation. Uh, okay, uh, I'll give you an example of just a half line in Isaiah because Isaiah is a master of taking two words that sound alike but are opposite in meaning, hmm. and by putting them together, he dramatizes in his poetry the 180-degree perversion of values in the kingdom of Judah in his time. So there is a verse in chapter 5 of Isaiah where God is is the the, uh, referent of the he here, and he hoped for justice, 
and the word for justice is mishpat. And look, a blight. But the, in Hebrew, the word for blight is mispach. So <laughs> you, you jump 180 degrees from mishpat justice to mispach blight. And okay. I thought that was extreme. Yeah. Yes. No, that's, that's fat. How do you get that across in English? Well, what I did was I said, he hoped for justice and look jaundice. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of blight. So I thought that it was, it, it wasn't stretching things to put it right. in. And I guess what, I mean, what, what I'm surmising here is that you could probably pick more, quote, scientifically accurate ways of rendering that second word in the wordplay. But but you're really interested in getting across this this literary beauty. I mean, I, I even hear an excitement in your voice when you're talking about Isaiah and how he uses wordplay. Um, so right, I mean, you're you're you're. I mean, I, I, this isn't the right way to put it because you always have to make choices in translation. But you're sacrificing a little bit of science for creativity, right? Okay. So I mean, that that's the broader question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say when you translate. You, you always have to make, or not always, but a, a large part of the time, you have to make compromises. Sometimes they're small compromises, sometimes they're big ones. So if you see two different things going on in the original, and you realize it's impossible to get them both into the translation, what you have to do is make a judgment call. Which of these two things is more important? And, uh, mm-hmm. and then you go for the more important one. So it, in, in the case of this little example from Isaiah, I felt that the cutting edge, the, the, the sharp point of the prophecy was precisely in his flipping one word to another word that sounded alike but meant the opposite. So, uh, I, let, I cut myself a little slack, and uh, and I found an equivalent in English. Yes. Well, I, I think I, I was going to ask you a question before, but the more I hear you talk, the clearer the answer is becoming for me. But I'll, I'll ask it anyway so others can join in here. Um, the big question, sort of the 30,000-foot question is, why did you do this? Why did you spend two and a half decades translating the Bible? Well, the, 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 the succinct answer, the short answer, is that I thought there was something wrong, uh, even I would say uh, in the case of the, the various 20th century translations by committee, something terribly wrong about the existing translations. And the, the Hebrew is often so great that I, I thought, there must be some way you can't replicate the greatness of the Hebrew, but at least you can approximate it. And, and that's what motivated me. Yeah, which is what people are losing out on, not, not seeing those things in the text, and that's worth seeing. Yeah, right. So, you know, with, when you don't have a committee, you're, you're making a lot of decisions there on your own. And I know in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot of uh, words that only occur one time, these hapax legomena, right? And 
so maybe talk some the processes you would use to help make decisions around if a word's only used once, you don't have the tools available like context and how is it used in other places to kind of talk about the the meaning. So how how would you, what's the process you used for those cases? Because I think there's there's quite a number of them, right? In a surprising number. Oh, of them. there are, there are. Now, uh, I'll begin on the negative side. That is, there are quite a few of these one-time-only words. Um, I'm sure somebody has tabulated how many. It might be 137 or 250, I don't know. Uh, These words that occur only once in the entire Hebrew Bible. And there seems to be no way to recover what they really meant. That is one strategy of Bible scholars is to look for cognates in another ancient Semitic language. But that is a tricky business because words that sound similar in two related languages often mean very different things. It's what the French call a faux ami, a, a false friend. <laughs> uh, for example, uh, I'll give you uh, uh, an instance from French. Uh, you might think that that uh, the uh, the word uh, the verb assister in French means the same thing as to assist in English, but it doesn't at all. It means to to attend, to be present at. So you see, uh, that, that's why I'm very, uh, I don't say that cognates from other Semitic languages can never help, but the, it's often a, a treacherous kind of help. So in, in many of these instances, Bible scholars simply take a guess at the meaning from the immediate context of the, the, the word. And, and alas, the, there were certainly times when I had to do that. The, the, this may be, the context may be a little more helpful in poetry because lines of biblical poetry are, um, are built on the semantic parallelism between the first half of the line and the second half of the line. So that, say, if, you have a, a noun in the first half of the line as the subject of the verb that, that means ship. Uh, and then you have an obscure word in the second half of the line that is also the subject of a verb. It, it's a not unreasonable guess, but it's still a guess, however educated, that the second word is also some kind of ship. So you might translate it as vessel. You see what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so that that's a common procedure, but um, I, I would say that that there, there's something else, uh, and that's especially in the narratives, looking at the actual narrative context of, of uh, the word. For, uh, can I give you uh, an example of a, a word that occurs twice in yeah. the Bible? Okay. That, that, that's legit. Oh, all right. <laughs> so, the, in the Samson story, uh, your listeners may remember that that 
Samson makes a wager with the Philistine wedding guests that if they can solve his riddle, he will give each of them, and there are 30 of them, a, a change of garments. Uh, and uh, the, the Hebrew is not in question there. It's, the word for change is halifot, and, and that always means to change or exchange. Okay, but then something odd happens in the story. Later on, oh, oh, after Samson, it's really immediately after Samson realizes that they, they have uh, somehow wormed the, the solution to the, the riddle out of his wife, and he's furious. So he goes down to Gaza, a Philistine city, uh, and he kills 30 Philistines. And he takes from them their chalitzot. Now that sounds like chalifot, but instead of an F sound in the middle consonant, it's a T sound in the middle consonant. So all the translations, uh, I don't think I, I found an exception, say, hey, it must be another word for change of garments. So they uh, translate as change of garments or tunics or uh, uh, whatever. I was suspicious of that. So I looked to the only other place in the Hebrew Bible where the same word chalitza occurs. Where does it occur? In, in the civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul after Saul's death, uh, Saul's savvy general is being pursued on the battlefield by the swift-footed Asael, and he doesn't want to kill him. So he says to Asael, turn you to the right or to the left and strike down one of the lads and take his halitza, that same word that appears in the Samson story. So all the modern translators following the lead from the Sansom story, say, take his tunic, take his garment, take his coat, take his belt, something that you wear. Now, if they had were paying any attention to the narrative context, and if they had read the Iliad, which, uh, say, the, the ancient Greek translators certainly had, they get it right, that they would have known that, that what, a warrior takes from a slain foe on the battlefield is not clothing, but his armor. Uh, mm -hmm. You remember the way that, that um, Hector takes uh, mm -hmm. Achilles' armor, which is being worn by Patroclus in, in, in the Iliad. So, it, and then it occurred to me that there's a, a, an etymology involved here. This is Hebrew root is also the root that's used in the word that means military vanguard. So a chalitza is the armor that the fighter in the vanguard was wearing. And at that point, this shows you where philological investigation can, uh, properly done, can light up a story. Mm -hmm. I realized that, that something was going on that no one had realized in the Samson story. The bet was for 30 changes of garments. So what does he do? He goes down to Gaza. He doesn't kill 
30 ordinary Philistines. He kills 30 warriors. And he brings back to the wedding guests something far more valuable than 30 sets of clothing. He brings back 30 sets of armor, and which is a way of kind of sticking it to the Philistines and also giving them a kind of a bleak warning. In other words, you see what I can do? I didn't kill any ordinary Philistines. I killed 30 warriors, and here is their armor. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Yeah, and I can imagine, you know, doing this, this kind of philological investigation that, well, at two and a half decades, right? I mean, the, the, it took you some time to do this, and I it just want, yeah, I, well, I'm, and it, of course it would, and and for people who are listening, you know, just to appreciate how much effort goes into making these kinds of observations, which which leads me to a question. I mean, which which book of the Hebrew Bible was the most difficult for you to get through? It presented the most challenges to you and maybe took the most time. Yeah, I, I think I would say the book of Job. Yeah, and yeah. The, 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 uh, the book of Job was a challenge for two reasons. One was a bad reason and the other was a good reason. The bad reason is that it's full of places where the text got messed up by scribes. I think that happened because the Job poet, who's an extraordinary poet, um, uses the biggest vocabulary of any poet in the Bible. And what happened, so he uses a lot of unusual words. And what a scribe will often do when he's confronted with a word that's unfamiliar to him is he'll substitute a different word. And by so doing, he messes up the text. You follow? Oh, yes. Uh, so th there, there were many places where, where um, nobody has been able to make head or tail of the received text uh, of uh, Job. I don't mean for whole chapters, but for whole clauses, let's say. And um, uh, I, I didn't have any better success th than anybody else. The, the only kind of odd thing that I did was that in just a few places where the text basically reads as gibberish in the Hebrew, and nobody's been able to rescue it from, from gibberish by emendations, I actually translated as gibberish in the English and then explained in a note why I did that. <laughs> well, okay. That's, yeah, that's, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's the negative side of the, um, uh, the challenge of Job. The positive side is, is that it is extraordinary poetry. I think it's among the greatest poetry that has come down to us from anywhere in the, the whole ancient world. 
and uh, it's full of brilliant imagery, word plays, extraordinary rhythms, and so forth. So uh, the, the challenge of trying to get at least some of that into uh, English that is readable as poetry was a big one, but it, it was kind of fun to do also. Hey everyone, my name is Aaron Neff from Buffalo, New York, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. One thing I have appreciated about this podcast is the unique and helpful perspectives Pete and Jared and their guests bring to the Bible. As someone who identified for most of my life as an evangelical, I find the wisdom from this podcast to be healing and often speaks directly to my experience. If you have benefited from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com backslash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. So thank you to Russ Moore, Ed, Bert Crossland, Fred Fouth, Robert Auth, Wayne Bartell, John Bonnet, and Scott Skiles. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. So I'm going to take us a little more macro because, you know, one of the things we actually talk about on this podcast quite a bit is you know, don't lose faith in the editors of this text and, you know, coming from more historical critical training where there could be some really cool things that come out, but also the conclusions are often, oh, kind of look at these sloppy, dumb editors who put these things next to each other or what, whatever it is. Can you speak to, as you looked very, because a lot of times you see these seams or see these places where texts are put together in what turn out to be pretty meticulous particular ways. So can you just speak to the complexity of that and how you see it? Is it sloppy editing or are there these intentional pieces that are woven together intentionally? I would say both. (laughs) That is, uh, okay, I'll give you an example of questionable editing. In the Pentateuch, there's this story of the, the rebellion of Korah against Moses and Aaron. And when you read it, you, you see that, that there are actually two different rebellions. One is against political authority, the other is against priestly authority, and the details don't match. That, that, that is, in one of the two strands here, the uh, Korach and his followers are uh, consumed in fire. And in another one, they're swallowed up by the earth. So there's no way to reconcile that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's hard for me to see 
how it's artistically justified. I think that the, the editor just had before him two different stories about Korach, and for some reason he felt that both were authoritative, and he had to include both, but they don't really work together. Okay, that's the negative side. Now, the positive side, okay, the story of Saul and David, especially this, well, yeah, both those stories, are, are full of what scholars call doublets. That, that is, episodes that, that seem to repeat each other with variations. And the, the general scholarly way of explaining this is, is that that these are two different traditions or versions that were spliced together by the editor. But sometimes the splicing is beautifully done. Uh, and I'll give uh, one example. At the beginning of the Saul story, when the prophet Samuel tells him he is to become king, he sends him off and he says that he's going to encounter a group uh, of prophets. That is, these are not prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but they're, they're kind of wandering ecstatics mm-hmm. who are infused by the Spirit. And he says, you will encounter them and you will become another man. In other words, instead of a simple uh, prosperous farmer's son, he's going to turn into a king. So he encounters the, the prophets, the spirit enters him, and he goes into ecstasy along with the prophets, and he becomes another man. And the story ends, therefore it is said today, is Saul too among the prophets? So evidently, the, the, there was an expression circulating in the culture, sort of like a bull in a china chop shop, right? Uh, You know, is Saul, who is a king, is he also among the prophets? It's improbable, but he is. Now, at the end of the Saul story, or near the end, there is another story that ends with, is Saul too among the prophets? In this case, Saul encounter after Samuel has said that you you were stripped of your kingship and and someone better than you will replace you. He encounters prophets and he goes into some kind of ecstatic trance and goes strips off all his clothing and rolls on the ground all night long. And, and then the story ends, is Saul to, among, therefore it is said today, is Saul to among the prophets. Now you see that, that it is a doublet, but it's a doublet with opposite intent. That is, this, the first Saul among the prophets story confers a, a more than ordinary stature on him as he becomes king. And the second story, they're, they're like, antithetical bookends to the Saul story. The second Saul story, uh, Saul among the prophets, strips him of his garments, implicitly of his kingship, and he's reduced to a pathetic creature rolling around uh, uh, on the ground. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. the, the 
the final destruction uh, of Saul as king. So you see that they've been, uh, they may seem to um, replicate each other, uh, well, duplicate each other, but, but in fact, uh, they uh, beautifully frame the story positive at the beginning and negative at the end. And when you get to that second example, the negative one at the end, the alert reader will recall, well, this is the second time I've seen this, right? And, and right, so right. then you, do you see the evolution or the devolution of Saul. I mean, it, it sort of makes it very striking. Exactly. There, there, there's a theological exactly. and literary element going on here. So, yeah. And, and you, you miss that sometimes if you don't pay attention, I guess. And would you explain that by saying, like, is it, this is, you, you talked about kind of the beautiful splicing, that this is a doublet. There probably were two, two traditions or two instances of this, and the editors found a way to include them both while also importing this new meaning. Because they say this, they kind of say the same thing, the narrative is the same, but based on where they happen in the story and a few details, they mean very different things. Was that accurate? Is that how you would talk about that? Yeah, uh, l- let me just reframe that slightly. I-, I would assume that, you know, th- this story comes to explain a saying. So it's w- what's called an ideological story, right? So there seem to have been two different stories in circulation to explain the saying is sold to him and the prophets. In one, he's elevated and in, in the other, it's the opposite. So I think an editor seized brilliantly on the opportunity and said, okay, I will put the first story at the beginning and I won't hesitate about replication. I will put the second story at the end and it will give a, a, a thematically perfect framing to the whole soul story. Mm-hmm. Um, you switching gears a little bit, Robert. You talk. I think you use the phrase the heresy of interpretation of explanation. Interpretation uh, okay. we can't avoid. <laughs> oh, the heresy of explanation. Okay, so explain that. <laughs> what, what what do you mean? Because that's a very interesting concept, and I think people would benefit from hearing you explain that. What what do you mean by that? Okay, uh, let me begin by, by uh, citing the expression that came to me in an email a couple of months ago. An older man who was ordained in the Church of Scotland wrote me. Uh, he was quite enthusiastic about my translation. And then he said that he and his wife, and by the way, this man knows biblical Hebrew well. He studied it for five years before he was ordained. Uh, He said that every time a a new translation by committee came out, he and his wife would rush out to buy it, and they would be bitterly disappointed. And his wife said the trouble with these translations is that they are bossy translations. (laughs) It's a wonderful phrase. In other words, instead of giving to the reader what the original says, they impose on the reader what the translator thinks it means. And I can give one rather pervasive metaphor in uh, the, especially in the, the narrative prose of the Bible. Now, the 20th century translators made the, the rather 
stupefying assumption that people cannot understand metaphor anymore. So what they repeatedly do is instead of giving you the metaphor that's in the original, they substitute what they think the metaphor refers to. Now, uh, this is uh, very condescending to the intelligence uh, of readers, and I prefer to give readers a good deal of credit. And it also ignores linguistic practice because we're using metaphors all the time. We say over the top, off the rails, throw in the towel, and so on and so forth. They're all metaphors, right? So I'll just give you one example. In the Joseph story, the first time his brothers come down to Egypt, uh, and of course, they, they don't recognize him as their brother. He says to them, in my translation, to see the nakedness of the land you have come. Hmm. Several modern translations that I've looked at say, you have come to spy out the weak points in our defense. Okay, yeah. So uh, the translators assume that a reader would be able to make no sense whatever of the nakedness of the land. I think it's fairly obvious. And also, what's lost is the following. To see the nakedness, as probably most readers of the Bible know, is the idiom used in taboos on incest. You know, you shall not see your mother's nakedness. So it's a sexually potent image. You know, that which should be covered, which should never be seen by a stranger you have come to see. And you lose all that if you take out the metaphor. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Now, do do you think that... Because, you know, there are readers of the English Bible who would not understand that metaphor. So do you, do you think that it's okay just to let people struggle with it, maybe in community try to discern what it means? Or do you think, okay. is there a place for footnotes, you know, for, for explaining some of these? Met- of course, you'd be having a lot of footnotes if you did that, because there's a lot of explaining to do. But do you think yeah, there's well, a I, I wrote a whole commentary. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there, there's just a place for footnotes, although uh, I'm going to guess that, a reader who has read the Bible before or read a lot of books of the Bible will probably remember this use of uh, thou shalt not see the nakedness of whatever the, the forbidden sexual partner is, and that would click in. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that that in the, 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 the present instance, since um, clearly seeing the, the the nakedness is something that you shouldn't do, something uh, seeing something that it's shameful for you to see, that 
the majority of readers, obviously not every reader, but the majority of readers would get the general idea. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by, by uh, giving more credit to the the reader's intelligence th- than I think the modern translators have done. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, I mean, English translations are sometimes geared towards... I think a seventh grade level, if I'm not mistaken, and yeah, right, uh, right, because they need to sell. You know, they want people to buy them. So, um, I mean, here this raises a question too. I mean, I don't know if this is in the category for you of bossy readings, but you know, at least in in the world that Jared and I have lived in for you know quite a while, gender neutral translations are highly valued. Uh, do you, do you think that's worth it, or do you think this is a, um, a again taking the artistry of the text? And I'm thinking of things like Psalm one, "Blessed is the man," right? Or or you know Psalm eight, and you know what is man? You're mindful of him, uh, mindful of him, the son of man that you should care for him, or something like that. You know. So what do you think about that? Now, I, I guess I would say this: that if you're doing a translation of a particular biblical text, let's say for a liturgical purpose, and you don't want half of your congregation, the half that is female, to feel excluded, it could be justified to do the the, uh, gender-neutral thing. But if if what you want to do is make the the Bible in general available as a rich reading experience, then I think you often have to forget about gender neutrality. Like, oh, for example, there's a a rather interesting Catholic translation of the Psalms that came out maybe about 15 years ago, evidently for liturgical use. And it's gender inclusive, and it's also based uh, on this, uh, what's called dynamic equivalence. Uh, That that is, you you take idioms in the original and you transpose them into very different idioms that might be equivalent in uh, the the language of of, uh, the translation. So we have... A phrase in Psalms, man and beast, God rescues. I think that that, uh, the older translation don't say rescues, but that's uh, a different issue. Now, this Catholic translation approved by a committee of bishops and so forth says something like, all things God rescues. Well, uh, I, I can see the point of that, uh, particularly in a liturgical context. All things, of course, doesn't discriminate, doesn't favor one, one of the two genders, right? correct? Mm-hmm. But man and beast is a kind of virtually proverbial collocation in the English language. And this is, a line of, this is part of a line of poetry uh, and and I think that if you're aiming at, at conveying something of the poetry, you need to stick with man and beast. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let me add the following. I 
risked a little bit of awkwardness in my translation of the opening chapters of Genesis. But I did this for reasons of precision in the meaning. First of all, Adam, or the Hebrew word Adam, is translated either as Adam, a name with a capital A, or as man in the older translations. Uh, first of all, it, it, it doesn't mean Adam, because it's always the Adam. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's the what? Uh, and I translate, I know it doesn't sound great, uh, I translate as the human. Why did I do that? Because... We have at the very beginning in chapter one of, uh, of Genesis, we have in the image of God, he created the human, male and female, he created them. Now, it, it makes no sense. It's incoherent to say he created man, male, and then male and female, he created them. If, if it's male and female, then it's not man. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that this Hebrew word, the Adam, although it's grammatically masculine, all Hebrew nouns are either masculine or feminine, it actually is gender neutral. So in most places where it occurs in the Hebrew Bible, I translate it as the human or human being or something to that effect. So there's at least one place where, because of the the meaning of the original, I, I did remain gender neutral. Mm-hmm. I, I, speaking of wordplay, so to bring that back, you know, Adam and Adama, which means ground or something like that, you had to deal with that as well in your translation, correct? Uh, what I did what was uh, at least one reviewer was unhappy with my solution, I thought that the word play was important to, uh, so I, I said he created the, the, the human and then I use humus for soil. Yeah, I can understand it. maybe a scientifically minded reader would say, well, that's not really helpful, but you're, you are getting across. I have to explain to students all the time there's a word play here and you have to take a few sentences to do that. But if you just do it like that, it, it alerts the readers. So that's. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, you know, Robert, we're, we're coming to the close of our time here. Uh, we could go on for hours, hours, and you're on the West Coast, so you could stay here for hours if you wanted to, but we're not going to make you do that. We're, we're nice people. We don't, we don't impose our will on other people. Yeah, but um, maybe just one last question, uh, and, you know, putting things together from what you're saying, I— I think what you're trying to do is be faithful to the original in some sense, right? Well, sure. Yeah, I mean... But but what I would say is this, that whereas the scholarly committees in in, uh, our time have uh, imagined that being faithful to the original means being very scrupulous about what every word means according to our scientific lights, and what it means in one context rather than another context. And I believe in trying to be scrupulous about the meanings of the words. I think that often the committees don't get those meanings exactly right. But I think that being faithful to the original 
means, well, some of the things that we've discussed, like uh, conveying wordplay and puns, it also means, this is something people don't think about much, it means trying to convey something of the rhythmic beauty of the original. For example, the narrative prose has many wonderful cadences. And the cadences, I think, are inseparable from the meaning. And uh, if you ignore those uh, and translate the prose into arrhythmic language, you're not being faithful to the original. Mm. So is there anywhere on online or books that you've written or places where you might recommend people to go for resources? You know, maybe are there a few resources you might recommend for people to get more information about this kind of reading of the Bible or uh, this kind? I know you've written other books, not just translating uh, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So what? where might you point people to go to if they wanted to take a next step or learn a little more about this kind of reading? Well, I definitely, this is where, uh, as a literary scholar, I got launched uh, on uh, writing about the Bible. Um, uh, I have two books that, that go back many years now, but have been continuously in print. Uh, the Art of Biblical Narrative, and uh, that was followed by The Art of Biblical Poetry, in which uh, I try to propose ways, things that you, you should look for in order to see the, the artistry of the Bible. Th- then I've written a little book as a kind of postscript to my translation. Uh, as it also forms a kind of third element in a trilogy, which, which is called uh, The Art of Bible Translation. Uh, and that came out just about six weeks ago. Let me see what else I would reckon. Well, there are quite a few literary studies of of the Bible out there now. There's a long book, maybe it gets a little convoluted at times, but it has some brilliant close readings of the Bible by Mayer Sternberg. Um, what is it called? Um, exact. It has biblical narrative in the title. I don't remember the the exact title. Uh, there, um, uh, a, a Dutch scholar named uh, 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 J. P. Fokkelman, F. O. K. K. E. L. M. A. N, has written a long series uh, of literary analyses mm-hmm. of the Bible. There's narrative art in Genesis, and then a multi-volume study of the uh, David story. So th- there are a lot of things out there. Right, right. Well, Robert, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and talking about your translation. We appreciate it greatly. Okay, it was good talking with you. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for listening, folks, once again to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. And uh, what's going on here, Jared? Well, we have something that is now available for you guys. If you go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash course, you will see that we have actually a number of courses. Pete did a few last year, but we have a new one up called Is the Bible True? 
that uh, I, I did live with a group of people just in the month of April. Ooh, and now provocative. Yes, is the Bible true? Mm. Mm. And it is now available for anyone to download as mm-hmm. a self-study course. So just go to thebibleformnormalpeople.com front slash course. And if it's if it's just too provocative and if it just scares you too much, you can just, just download one of the other ones that Pete's already done. No, or just or just pay for it, but don't download it. Oh, you, know, you can do whatever you want yeah. with it as long as you pay for it. Yeah, I, mean, bro, I don't care if you listen to it or not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's right. Anyway. It's not like we're trying to be helpful I know. to people over here. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that's all we have for today, so we'll uh, catch you next time. See you next time. Bye, folks. into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.